0: Almost invariably, whenever one person becomes a head of government or head of state, one other person, their partner, is elevated to a position of potentially considerable public renown and political influence. Whatever else they may have done with their lives until that point, they will likely need to abruptly retrain, indeed learn on the job, as some combination of advocate, lobbyist and diplomat. The First Lady of the United States, and so far at least, the President's partner has always been a lady, is recognised as an actual job in every respect but receiving a paycheck. Elsewhere, it varies from country to country. There are those spouses of national leaders who prefer to limit their role to the occasional dutiful photo op. But at the very least, an amount of making demure small talk over the canopies with visiting royalty is going to be involved. How should a first lady or first gentleman make the most of their prominence without overstepping? What kind of legacy can they really bequeath? And how weird is it actually being the partner of a national leader and global figure? This is The Foreign Desk.
1: The workload is just phenomenal, you know, and and it was my job to sort of get a bit growly at about 11 o'clock every night to say, hey, come on, you actually need some sleep. So I I always considered that probably my most important job. But, you know, I certainly wasn't adverse to occasionally sticking my oar in on issues or things that I thought needed attention to be drawn to them as well.
2: You know, I think Mrs. Bush always leveraged her own expertise and passions, and she actually suggests that for other First Ladies. As we met with First Ladies around the world, she said, start with what you know. Start with, you know, if you've had a profession or the things that you've worked on your whole life, that's where you would want to start. This
3: partnership is important to the success of the presidency because the First Lady is the most intimate partner of the president, in this case, because they've all been women. And that is the person who is, by design, the most important plank of the support system that goes into any presidential administration.
0: You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Joining me first of all from Auckland is a member of that exclusive coterie of people who know how completely your life gets upended when your partner goes and gets themselves put in charge of the country. Clark Gayford is a radio and television broadcaster from New Zealand who has hosted several shows, including the popular TV programme Fish of the Day. Clark is also the husband of Jacinda Ardern, who was Prime Minister of New Zealand from 2017 to 2023. Clark, first of all, I want to take you back to the moment at which it became clear to you that your partner was actually going to be Prime Minister. Is there any way to explain how that feels?
1: It is a lot to absorb. There's obviously a great big lead up to that moment of will she, won't she. So you sort of are anticipating it, you're hoping for it, but then nothing sort of prepares you for it when it actually happens. What was the biggest adjustment? I
0: mean, I'm sure nothing does prepare you for it. It must be one of those those learn-by-doing kind
1: of experiences. But was there a particular aspect of it that seemed strange? Security is the obvious one. Suddenly being surrounded by these tall, handsome men in suits uh, who followed us <laughs> everywhere and were quite keen to know where we were going at all times. And you don't ever really ever get used to that. So, yeah, that was definitely probably the most clearing.
0: You had some experience of that, though, being a, a media personality yourself.
1: Do you think that helped you adjust? Oh, look, I'm I'm on record as saying I think it was the key thing that helped me survive through <laughs> a lot of that. You know, like I, I'm used to doing media around some of the TV shows that I'm promoting, or you know, interviews and bits and pieces, but. I wasn't quite ready for that level of scrutiny. You know, people that might not have your best interests at heart or journalists asking curly questions or people going back through years of things that you'd said on record to try and draw some sort of story or a bit of attention out. And that, that was certainly an eye opener.
0: We're talking a lot in this episode about the role that the spouses of heads of government can play. Did you give much thought in advance to anything
1: you would like to do with the role? No, well, in New Zealand, there's no official role. It's certainly not like the United States. And so I always tried to live by the mantra of saying that the most important thing I could do in politics was just support my partner and try and stay out of the headlines for all the wrong reasons. (laughs) And And I sort of succeeded at doing that so for me it was just keeping the wheels turning at home it is a relentless job being at the top like that and particularly some of the issues and things that we went through it was just day in day out you have a cabinet bag full of ministerial papers that follows you home a man knocks on the door and he delivers them doesn't matter where you are one day we were in transit traveling through Australia and someone managed to turn up with this briefcase of never ending <laughs> papers and the workload is just phenomenal, you know, and, and it was my job to sort of get a bit growly at about 11 o'clock every night to say, hey, come on, you actually need some sleep. So I, I always considered that probably my most important job. But, you know, I certainly wasn't adverse to occasionally sticking my aura in on issues or things that I thought needed attention to be drawn to them as well.
0: Is there an aspect, though, of the job, do you think, or at least to do it well, that you understand that for as long as your partner is doing this job, it's really not going to be about you, that you have to sublimate anything you might
1: want to do for as long as they occupy this position? Well, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, when one of those stars, supernovas, and you desperately try not to be sucked into the orbit because you have your own <laughs> things going on. Thank you very much. But uh, it's, you can't help it. You know, like I didn't own a suit before <laughs> Jacinda became leader of the party. And by the time she left, I think I owned five. So, you know, like life, life changes whether you want to or not. And it is it is quite interesting because I, I had a profile prior to her getting the job and we would sort of have equal pegging going down to the shopping mall with usually older concerned constituents coming up to her with their issues of the day. And I was in music television and I'd get someone in a hoodie and a and a baseball cap wanting to talk about a, <laughs> a, a new album from so and so. Then, and then that sort of flipped quite savagely and, and violently. And I, I didn't mind that at all. But I was I truly got an understanding of my place in it all at a a rugby league club rooms on the outskirts of Wellington, where I couldn't get near Jacinda. There was all these people crowded around her for selfies and bits and pieces, and they were all trying to get into it. And I sort of, you know, happily stood at the back of the room. And these two young girls sidled up to me, because what happens is when people realise they couldn't get close to her, that I would be the second prize. So I'd go, okay, I'd see what happened. They'd come over to me. They'd look a bit dejected. And then they come and ask for a selfie. And on this occasion, these two girls came over and I happened to be holding Jacinda's coat and they both started the small talk and I knew what was coming. I knew that they wanted the second prize selfie. And then they asked, they said, is that Jacinda's coat? And I said, yes, yes it is. And they said, do you think we could have a photo with, with her coat? And I went, okay, good. All right. So this is the pecking order. It's Jacinda, then her coat. And then I'm I'm somewhere down, down the ranks after that. <laughs> That's got to be a good day for the ego, a day like that. Oh, it's healthy. It's very healthy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been very good for me.
0: That said, at moments, not necessarily like that when she's surrounded by people who are largely in her favour, but at moments when she's criticised as somebody in her position is going to be and as somebody in her position should be, do you find yourself getting I don't know, protective, is there part of you that wants to write angry emails to critical journalists or engage with people on social
1: media? I did. I made a couple of mistakes in that space right at the start. And then I quickly learned that that wasn't effective at all. And it was it was frustrating in that aspect that as soon as you flinch or blink or whatever, then that becomes a new story in itself. And that's the last thing that I wanted. It did get easy to compartmentalize things, you know, sort of low rent name calling and all the rest actually becomes, I found that quite useful because you instantly went, ah, oh, well, and you discounted whatever the following criticism was that was coming behind that. The stuff that really got me was the really unjust things that would happen because often you would know the issue of the day or the thing that had come up. You would know all the facts and elements of that story. And then sometimes you would see it reflected in media and it not having a semblance of truth to what actually was happening and going on and just that inability to sort of speak out and say, hey, this this isn't right. That was probably the hardest stuff.
0: With your role in particular, I was wondering if there was kind of a two-tier adjustment, because first you have to adjust to the fact that your partner is Prime Minister of New Zealand, but you quite quickly then have to adjust to the fact that she has become, as no previous Prime Minister of New Zealand has, this global figure. Was was that a
1: strange learning curve? <laughs> it certainly was, and it certainly still is. And we'd try and have our escape. We would often pop over to Australia because we'd sort of enjoy a little bit of anonymity there. And so you got to sort of live back more of a everyday human existence. And then that started to unravel. Going to Australia didn't seem to be any less of a reprieve. And, and then it got quite awkward with every second person asking her to please lead our country that would come up <laughs> on the street. <laughs>
0: But when you travel abroad to international conferences and summits and so on, what did you find yourself doing? Is there a a coterie of first spouses that gathers at these things, which, you know, obviously the world being the way the world is, is going to be a largely
1: female conclave? Yes. I spent many moments thinking, what the heck am I doing here? (laughs) There is actually a lovely photo online. I think the Herald put it on their front page. We were in Buckingham Palace, and I think it was for Chogham Commonwealth Heads of Government. And there was 54 heads of government there. And the only other male spouse of a leader was actually Philip May. And he was off doing something else. And so I ended up with all these lovely ladies in traditional dress, a lot of satin. Uh, And we were in Buckingham Palace. And the event splintered where all the leaders were taken off to bilats meetings and whatnot and no one really gave us a strong direction on where to go and we were kind of following each other and we took a couple of wrong turns and suddenly i ended up lost in a hall in buckingham palace with about 25 first ladies and i took the opportunity for a group photo because i thought it was particularly hilarious but we were sort of (laughs) leading each other around and usually when you go on those events they do have a spousal program And they always would pull me aside and say, look, you don't have to go on these. And I would always insist I'd find them so entertaining. But we would go to the Kew Gardens and plant a tree or I would go to a makeup factory or (laughs) to all these. I'd go to high tea and eat little sandwiches with no crust on. And I just I enjoyed that so much because it was just so at odds with (laughs) anything I'd normally do. What does a large gathering of first spouses talk about, though? Uh, well, I really, really got to know how to grow a good orchid. Um, <laughs> I believe that was with the wife of the leader from Papua New Guinea. Man, we did some good orchid chat and just all sorts of things. I had a, a lovely engagement with Mrs. Ake Abe, the partner of the late Prime Minister of Japan. And she had never, and I think however long he had been in, which was a considerable stint, she had never received a female spouse before. Because we often we go off and we have our own catch up if it's a, a one-on-one. And she was so nervous about not having anything to talk to me about, and she knew that I was into fish, that she brought along Japan's fish ambassador, a man that turned up in a white lab coat with a puffer fish hat on, and he drew pictures of fish throughout our chat, which I found quite enjoyable. Just finally, it's probable that
0: you've understood by now that your life is never going to return entirely to normal, and that you'll probably...
1: So come on, Andrew, <laughs> Don't say that, Andrew.
0: But is there anything about the position of being specifically New Zealand's first gentleman that you
1: miss? No, I mean, this is the great thing about New Zealand. We we have this tall poppy thing. We don't like people to put their necks out and get their heads above it. So it was never treated with much airs and graces. It was a bit of fun that people had. So it wasn't like this great departure that I was giving up all of these trappings and and other bits and pieces. We maintained as normal a life as possible. And, you know, the upside of that is that it, it wasn't a massive adjustment coming out the other side. I do miss... A lot of the events that we used to go to, you know, we got to poke our noses into the most far flung corners of New Zealand. And we always joke about how small New Zealand is. But when someone comes up to talk to you and they don't know you, they usually they want to ease the path. They want to find a way to introduce themselves. And it was so remarkable how I could go into a a small former mining town on the west coast of the South Island of New Zealand and someone would come out of the woodwork and say, oh, I'm good mates with your cousin from down the (laughs) way. And you truly get this proper understanding of the way that New Zealand is a big island, that we are a large community and we all sort of are connected or just a couple of steps removed from each other.
0: Clark Gayford, thank you very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. Joining me now from Washington, D.C. is Charity Wallace, founder and president of Wallace Global Impact, who formerly served as chief of staff to former First Lady of the United States, Laura Bush, from 2009 to 2010. And joining us from Olympia, Washington State, is Elizabeth Natali, associate professor at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro and author of Jacqueline Kennedy and the Architecture of First Lady Diplomacy. Elizabeth is also co-founder of the First Ladies Association for Research and Education. Charity, first of all, as you saw it, how accustomed do you think Laura Bush felt to being First Lady?
2: Well, you know, she had the advantage of having a mother-in-law who had been First Lady of the United States. So she had a very unique perspective and really a role model to follow in a lot of ways. But, I, you know, and she had been the first lady of Texas and recognized the platform and the podium that a first lady had to utilize to really champion social impact issues. She chose to look at her background in education and literacy and start there. But I think, honestly, after September 11th, a lot of our eyes shifted towards Afghanistan. And she became a real champion for women's issues in Afghanistan and across the world. And her platform became larger and larger. In fact, she is one of the most traveled first ladies, which you wouldn't expect maybe from Laura Bush, but she traveled to over 75 countries in all 50 states. And so she utilized that platform and I think realized more and more the podium that she had as the years went on.
0: We will be talking a bit more, Elizabeth, about what First Ladies do with that platform. But I want to go back to First Principles and talk a bit about how and why they are put on that platform in the first place. Is it strange, do you think, that the idea of the First Lady, the First Spouse indeed, has become a thing at all? I mean, they are not elected. They are lent public prominence by the fact that they happen to be married to somebody who has been elected.
3: I don't think it's strange at all because it's a partnership like many relationships. And so when a person marries a political figure, I think they know what they're getting into most of the time these days. So this partnership is important to the success of the presidency because the first lady is the most intimate partner of the president in this case, because they've all been women. And that is the person who is by design the most important plank of the support system that goes into any presidential administration. But what's rather strange to me is the space that the First Lady is in during an election period versus in the White House. Because during the election, she's in what I would call a kind of liminal space where part of the presidency is gained by the likability of the candidates and this includes the First Lady. But then once she gets into the White House, well, she's in a kind of catch 22 because she's there to support the presidency, but she can't go too far outside of the party platform or the president's agenda.
0: Just to follow that up quickly, Elizabeth, you say it's not surprising or necessarily all that strange that the spouse of a politician occupies that role. But do you think it is a particularly American idea that has somehow got exported, as American ideas so often do? Because when I think of the two countries that I've lived in for protracted periods, the United Kingdom and Australia, the wife or indeed husband of the Prime Minister has not necessarily been a public figure and indeed In a couple of cases I can think of, I think they could have walked the streets quite comfortably without anybody having the least idea who they were.
3: I would say it is an American phenomenon and it's frankly traced, I think, back to Jacqueline Kennedy when the media suddenly took on a beautiful first lady and made her into a media celebrity because it was the first time that we had television coverage full-time of a presidency, and like many things in the United States, it has become over-the-top.
0: Mrs. Kennedy, every First Lady and every administration since President Madison's time has made changes, greater or smaller, in the White House. Before we look at any of the changes you've made, what's your basic plan?
1: Well, I really don't have one because I think this house will always grow and should. It just seemed to me such a shame when we came here to find hardly
3: anything of the past in the house. So yeah, it's an American phenomenon for sure.
2: May I just add, sorry, Andrew, that you know, there's there's first ladies all over the world that we had the opportunity to work with. Larvish launched a first ladies initiative specifically to support first ladies from sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America and Asia because first ladies are put on this platform. Some of them very unexpectedly. um, But, you know, and and so it was an ability for them to really step into that role. And many of them have done that so beautifully, especially, I think, in sub-Saharan Africa. There's a number of them who have taken on HIV and AIDS and malaria and cervical cancer, utilizing their expertise and backgrounds. You know, there was the Zambian first lady was actually an OBGYN and ended up taking on cervical cancer as one of her platform issues. And they really end up being role models for women in their own countries, destigmatizing some issues such as AIDS, or even Betty Ford did that for breast cancer and substance abuse. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I do think it potentially is uh, um, American, if you will, phenomenon, but it really dates back to almost the beginning of America. And I think First Ladies have now seen the platform that they have to really make a significant difference, especially for women and children in their countries.
0: Charity, that does prompt the question of what kind of role a First Lady should take on and what issues they should address. And again, referring to your own experience with Laura Bush, were there conversations around, you know, this is a safe and appropriate thing for me to get into, and that perhaps isn't? And, And how do those decisions get made?
2: You know, I think Mrs. Bush always leveraged, like I said at the beginning, her own expertise and passions. And she actually suggests that for other First Ladies. As we met with First Ladies around the world, she said, start with what you know. Start with, you know, if you've had a profession or the things that you've worked on your whole life, that's where you would want to start. I think that there's more leeway in a lot of ways for first ladies, particularly because they usually take on social issues. And there is an expectation that they will champion issues that will further for everyone's benefit. They will better the lives of people in their countries. There wasn't from... Anything that I remember having a conversation to say, you shouldn't talk about this issue. You should talk about this issue. Mrs. Bush has great instincts, I'll say. But um, it is an opportunity, like I said, to raise awareness about issues that may not be even something that the population talks about. So I think, again, Betty Ford's a perfect example. You couldn't print the word breast when she talked about having breast cancer in the newspapers. And substance abuse was something that people to this day don't love to talk about, but she created an opportunity for people to address their substance abuse because she was very vulnerable and honest and transparent. And I don't think there's things that are off limits per se, but I do think it's opportunity for women or men even to use that role and that platform effectively to help other people.
0: Elizabeth, should there be some sort of distance, though, between the first lady or first husband and the administration that their partner leads? The obvious countervailing example there, I guess, is is Hillary Clinton during the presidency of Bill Clinton. There was some suggestion that when voters elected Bill Clinton, they were getting two for one. She was put in charge of a very key plank of Clinton's platform, which was attempting to reform health care. And I think there was unfairly or otherwise, a lot of resentment of the fact that Clinton, Hillary that is, who nobody had elected, had been elevated to this prominent position in the administration. Is that always a mistake, even if the first lady concerned is an accomplished and intelligent person?
3: It's interesting that you use the word mistake because I don't necessarily think it's a mistake. I think it depends upon the execution of the decision that's being made. So, for example, in the case of Hillary Clinton, who's a highly intelligent woman, she was cast in the role of a policymaker rather than an advisor. Her super intelligence intimidated people, not only on Capitol Hill when she was testifying before Congress and trying to push those healthcare policies through, but the American public was intimidated. And then, of course, she didn't help it when she talked about she wasn't going to stay home and bake cookies. So the public already had this sense of Mrs. Clinton that was not in her favor. If we go back to Rosalind Carter, who was extremely well-versed and had assisted Jimmy Carter while he was governor with mental health care policy, once they got into the White House, he did not put her into the position of policymaker because it was very clear that that was not going to fly. So while the policies didn't go through in the way that the Carters wanted them to, Mrs. Carter was still active behind the scenes. And so there are ways in which policymaking and policy advice can be done without the kind of visibility that Mrs. Clinton was unfortunately punished for, in my view.
0: Charity, do you think at best the role, if it's inhabited by an appropriate and effective person, gives them license to act as a kind of freelance diplomat, a kind of freelance advocate? Because they do have an amount of power and an amount of prominence, but ultimately they're they're kind of liberated from having to take responsibility. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, I wouldn't call them freelance per se. I think that, you know, they do serve in a role that is very specific to the presidency or to a prime ministership. And there are parameters around the role, even though it's sort of nebulous, I will say. It's, it's an unpaid, very nebulous role, but each First Lady can make her own stamp on that role. I do think that they are used well with soft diplomacy, soft power. And frankly, you see examples. Jackie Kennedy's a perfect example. She really helps the relationship between France and the United States. She was so beloved when they went to Paris.
3: At the Elysee, the ceremonial
0: guard awaited Mr. Kennedy's arrival. It has pleased the French that he came to Paris before going to
1: Vienna to meet Mr. Job. It has gratified General de Gaulle, no less. Mrs. Kennedy, as most people would have expected, has also been a great success. She was graciously met by Madame de
3: Gaulle and the general himself.
1: Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, I do not uh, think it altogether inappropriate to introduce myself to this audience. I am the man who accompanied Jacqueline Kennedy uh, to Paris, and I've enjoyed it.
2: And she had a really magnificent relationship with Charles de Gaulle, which really softened a lot of the challenges that the United States was facing with France at the time. So there is a role for first ladies to serve. I don't think of of them as freelancers, per se, but I think of them as uh, secret weapons, if you will. They go out and they're able like within the Bush administration, we launched the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief. It's just celebrated its 20th anniversary, and it has saved more than 25 million people's lives. But because President Bush couldn't go to every single country, Laura Bush was sent to 10 of the 15 PEPFAR countries and was able to roll out that really life-saving program. That really promoted opportunities, like we said, to save people's lives in Africa. And I think having First ladies serve as a diplomat, if you will, in diplomacy is actually very effective. And they can discuss challenging issues in certain cultures that are sensitive at times that a president could never do.
0: Elizabeth, put like that, is it arguable, in fact, that the First Lady, especially the First Lady of the United States, is actually undervalued as a diplomatic asset? Could they be doing more of playing, I guess, a sort of good cop as opposed to the bad cop?
3: Uh, I think first ladies are maximized these days. Most people don't know that a first lady's staff can number up to two dozen people who are helping her to orchestrate the agenda that she has and the kind of work that the president may ask her to do. And so I think we also realize that diplomacy is not only between governments. There can be diplomatic gestures done within a country as well. When you have cultural groups within a country as large as ours, first ladies are often trying to reach out to a variety of demographics in diplomatic ways. So civil society is her domain, but she's also supporting the presidency. So even Joe Biden, who was out doing the vaccine support during COVID-19 for the president because he couldn't get out and do the travel and encourage people to get vaccinated. It was the first lady, and she was really diplomatically working through a lot of issues at that time as she was encouraging the vaccination program. So- To me, diplomacy is a primary thing that First Ladies do, and it's a well-orchestrated process at this point in time. Charity, when we
0: think about the United States First Lady in particular, do you think that perceptions of the role at home and abroad would change if that position was, in fact, occupied by a man, which is far from impossible, if it was a a first gentleman and possibly even a first gentleman who was himself married to a gentleman?
2: I hope not. My hope is that there wouldn't be a difference. I mean, first ladies are often criticised for their fashion, I don't think that would be necessarily the same case for a first gentleman, but I do think that hopefully they would leverage again, that platform. It is such a unique platform that you can help so many individuals and it's for a finite period of time. So I always hope that the first spouse would take full advantage of that It opportunity. And I hope that there wouldn't be a difference. I'm sure there would be some differences. um, But I don't think it would be significant at this point in our country's history.
0: Just finally, I want to ask you each in turn, and I'll, I'll ask you first, Elizabeth, if you can pick one first lady, and it doesn't necessarily have to be an American one, who to you strikes you as somebody who really has effectively made the most of the kind of opportunities we've been discussing that go with the role?
3: Well, I think you have to look at that historically and in a contemporary mode. So for us in the United States, Eleanor Roosevelt is everyone's first lady. She tops out the polls constantly and she's the gold standard by which we measure uh, the effectiveness of a first lady, if you will. For me, of course, I've studied Jacqueline Kennedy more than any other first lady, and her role as a transition first lady into the modern period where she set an agenda. And from there on out, we've expected first ladies to use the platform that charity has been talking about so much. My contemporary first lady happens to be Michelle Obama. I think she has done absolute wonders with the role and pushed the role of first lady forward, especially in the age of social media, in ways that other first ladies I don't think have had an opportunity to do. And Charity, other
2: than Laura Bush? (laughs) How could I not choose Laura Bush as my favorite first lady? You know, I actually am fascinated with Clementine Churchill and the role that she served, like Eleanor Roosevelt, at the same time, she had such a significant role and a partnership really with Prime Minister Churchill during a very significant, challenging time and forced him to think about how women were so critical to the success of World War II, of winning the war, something that he wasn't really wanting to discuss. But she came out and said, this is absolutely how we will win the war. And it changed a lot of his policies and his rhetoric. So she's one of my favorites to think about. Cherie Blair is another one I've worked very closely with. She's doing amazing work for women all over the world. And then there's a lot of African first ladies that have done significant work in their countries to raise awareness and opportunity for women to be healthier and girls to be educated. So mine will always be Lara Bush. But we have a number of amazing examples of first ladies from around the world who are serving their populations and citizens so well.
0: Charity Wallace and Elizabeth Natali, thank you both very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.